0: Welcome to Seven Heads, Ten Horns with Klaus Yoder and Travis Stevens. Welcome back to the pod dedicated to the demonically cursed ship, the Pequod. That is Seven Heads, Ten Horns, the internet's only history of the devil. I'm Klaus Yoder. I'm here again alone. Travis and I are actually working on planning out next season. We're really psyched to be coming up with some great sequences of episodes on medieval theology and demonology. And yeah, that'll be coming at you pretty soon. I sound like a radio DJ from the 90s. It's awesome. A shock jock, as it were. Um, anyway, back to finish up the bonus episode on Moby Dick. I'm on the road. I'm back in Pennsylvania. I'm driving the highways. And so I actually had the chance to finish the novel by podcast on my way across I-78 West. So that was, there was something fitting about that. I had been like subbing in some parts where I was just reading the novel if I had a spare moment in, you know, with my eyes and without a podcast person whispering into my ears. But it was it was I think fitting since I'm doing this to finish it up via podcast. So yeah, now that I'm finished, I've had some time to process the whole novel. The podcast format was great for it. I liked the reader a lot, as I mentioned last time. My one complaint is that there are a lot of chapters in Moby Dick. There are 137, including like the uh, the anthology of quotations about whales at the start and the epilogue. And uh, this website, this podcast insisted on giving a a podcast per chapter. And some of these chapters read out at like three minutes long. So especially since it's an older podcast, it's only on Apple Podcast. It is a little bit hard to manage the playlist aspect because you can't really do that in iTunes, Apple Apple Podcast. You have to add to the queue. And sometimes if you are hooked up to a Bluetooth and you have your queue set up, and you get in your car, some like it glitches, and it'll erase the entire queue, and you'll have to start all over again. And so, yeah, that's my my main beef with the whole thing. But anyway, enough of my my grousing. I wanted to talk first about sort of the a big picture aspect of the novel that I have more of a sense of now, having gone through the whole thing again. That's the structure of the novel, which can be a little bit funny. The beginning of the novel starts off largely with Ishmael and through his perspective, as we get further and further into the novel, Ishmael sort of recedes farther and farther back into the, into the background. And I I think that's interesting as, as the novel really focuses at the end on this sort of like mythological final battle climax where you get, where you get Ishmael through the novel, you know, the the sort of main, the main action, the main story for Ishmael is his story of getting on board, becoming friends with Queequeg, getting his birth, um, that sort of thing. And then you get his voice mostly in these sorts of vignettes, these sort of naturalistic descriptions of the whale. There's a lot that he talks through about the, the, the differences between the whales, the nobility of whaling. There's a, this sort of ethnographic detail about whaling. There's a lot of biology and natural philosophy as it stood in the mid-19th century about uh, cetology or the study of whales. And so that sort of bounces out the more sort of main narrative the more the sort of main mythology of the plot of Moby Dick and it reminded me of the X-Files where you have like these sort of mythology episodes with like Mulder trying to figure out the truth about his his government spook family and their their connections to the UFOs that are haunting our political situation or whatever and then you have like the monster of the week episodes and it's a little bit parallel I think to how it works in Moby Dick you have these these sort of chapters that are driving the mythology that centers more and more and more on Ahab and his, his sort of tragical purpose and the whole thing. And then you have these sort of these asides about the business of whaling, the, the mysteries and the majesty and what knowledge we have about the sperm whale in particular and whales in general. Ishmael is kind of a gossip He's 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 got a and these are some of the chapters in which his sense of humor comes out the most. I would say Ishmael's voice has a lot of irony and humor written in as do the voices of the mates, Stubb, Flask, and, and Starbuck. Not Starbuck doesn't really have much of a sense of humor. He's pretty he's a pretty serious person. Um, but yeah, that is important and as a lot of the middle part of the novel is made up with these details, these sort these deep dives into the, the lives of the whales and what we know about them. So I see this actually fitting in with an important claim from that scholar Cook, whose book I was relying on for a bit of my interpretation last time, that Ishmael's point of view on the whale is quite different from Ahab's. Ishmael is sort of an empiricist. He wants to know what there is to know about these 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 beings. And he, he sort of really affected by them but he wants he wants knowledge he doesn't demonize them in the same way as ahab which is not to say that there isn't a theological resonance to his engagement with the sperm whale but you don't have this assumption that the whale is almost like an intelligently malevolent force operating in the universe like that's not really where where ishmael seems to come down on it so an, an idea that I see as like important to Ishmael's perspective is that we project a lot onto these whales because in part because they are so majestic, they sort of are almost magnets for drawing our mythological parts of ourselves out of ourselves. And there's a passage I wanted to read from the chapters on the tale that really sort of gets into this. As in the ordinary floating posture of the Leviathan, the flukes, that is sort of like the uh, the tips of the tail, lie considerably below the level of his back. They are then completely out of sight beneath the surface, but when he's about to plunge into the deeps, his entire flukes, with at least 30 feet of his body, are tossed erect in the air, and so remain vibrating a moment, till they downward shoot out of view. Accepting the sublime breach, somewhere else to be described. This peaking of the whale's flukes is perhaps the grandest sight to be seen in all animated nature. Out of the bottomless profundities, the gigantic tail seems spasmodically snatching at the highest heaven. So in dreams have I seen majestic Satan thrusting forth his tormented colossal claw from the flame Baltic of hell. But in gazing at such scenes, it is all in all what mood you are in. If in the Dantean, the devils will occur to you, if in that of Isaiah, the archangels. So the ambivalence of the whale, the, the fact that they whale can be this imagery for satanic, sort of pessimistic paranoia about nature, or it can be this majestic, quasi-angelic phenomenon. Ishmael chalks us up to like, it depends where you're coming from. It depends on your perspective. This whale isn't just the demon or just an angel. It's about how there's a kind of chemical, psychological reaction that occurs between the viewer and the viewed that really makes this work. Which is not to say that Ishmael is totally going to deny that there are terrifying, even apparently evil aspects of the whale, the sperm whale in particular. But he's always going to hedge, too. He's, He's sort of both sides it. So even in the moments of the denouement of the novel, when, as you probably know by now, Moby Dick destroys the Pequod and kills 99% of its crew, the narrator hedges on whether a particular move or stratagem seemingly employed by the whale is evidence of some insidious hatred, some malevolent plotting, or just like an instinctual reaction on its part. Be that as it may, there are moments of the novel, especially the naturalistic moments, rather than like the sort of mythologically mad hunt moments, where Ishmael goes into an apophatic mode of theologizing. By which I mean apophatic, the unsaying. He's, he's almost doing a kind of theology where he denies rather than affirms. So the last passage I read was from the description of the whale's tail. And that chapter concludes with this amazing negative theological reflection. He writes, The more I consider this mighty tale, the more do I deplore my inability to express it. At times there are gestures in it which, though they would well grace the hand of man, remain wholly inexplicable. In an extensive herd, so remarkable occasionally, are these mystic gestures, that I have heard hunters who have declared them akin to Freemason signs and symbols, that the whale, indeed by these methods, intelligently conversed with the world. Nor are there wanting other motions of the whale in his general body, full of strangeness and unaccountable to his most experienced assailant. Dissect him how I may, then, I, but go skin deep. I know him not, and never will. But if I know not even the tail of this whale, how understand his head? And much more, how comprehend his face, when face he has none? Thou shalt see my back parts, my tail, he seems to say, but my face shall not be seen. But I cannot completely make out his back parts, and hint what he will about his face. I say again, he has no face. This language about seeing back parts, the tail but not the face, this obviously echoes the way Yahweh speaks and appears to Moses on the mountain in the book of Exodus. Moses is permitted a view at God's backside. Here Ishmael seems to outstrip the Exodus story, denying that he can even make out the tail, the backside, to do it any kind of justice. And also that despite the hints of a face, there is no face. God has a face in, in Exodus. But what when, when when Melville says that the sperm whale has no face, I wonder what he could be getting at. That in spite of the divine majesty and mystery of the whale, there's like no there there. The sperm whale is so majestic, and as I said, my sort of my image is like it's a magnet that pulls our mythological parts of our souls out of ourselves. It's also like a rorschach, like a stall that we sort of project onto. But it's only able to do that because it already the will already has so much power and majesty to lend us what we want or need to see there. Does this mean that he's asserting a kind of divinity in nature itself? There are some frequent allusions to Spinoza throughout the book. And, and for, you know, for people who are maybe new to Spinoza, this sort of pantheistic or panentheistic view that God and nature, there's an equal sign between those two terms. Is, is something that Melville sort of seems to be working through. And I wonder if this means that recognizing God in this book means recognizing a being that is radically different from our from our anthropomorphized anticipations. This not having a face is a way of saying there is something theological or divine in this natural phenomenon, but it's it's radically other. a passage that relates to all this and I, I take it to be, if not the thesis of the novel, then an important thesis of the novel. And I'll, I'll just read it. It's from around the same section. And so through all the thick mists of the dim doubts in my mind, divine intuitions now and then shoot, enkindling my fog with a heavenly ray. And for this I thank God, for all have doubts, many deny, but doubts or denials, few along with them have intuitions." Doubts of all things earthly, and intuitions of some things heavenly. This combination makes neither believer nor infidel, but makes a man who regards them both with equal eye. And to me, that seems like Ishmael, Melville Melville speaking through Ishmael, you get the sense that there's something he wants to hold on to in divine or biblical revelation, that there's something that we need to learn from that. But that he's, he's trying to strive for a kind of, of balance or, or like a, an ability to be able to, to chew gum and walk at the same time in terms of like having skepticism, having doubts, but also gaining something from this, from these, these intuitions, from I'm not sure if the imagination is the right word, but through the kind of almost autonomous flights of the mind and the soul in response to natural phenomena. And, and I think that's, that's that tells us a lot about the theology and, and I would also say as I'll, I think I'll go on to say like also the demonology of of Moby Dick. So to get more into the demonology, I'll pivot to Ahab and Ahab's perspective in the novel and this means talking about his secret assistant like almost the the shadow first mate Starbucks the first mate, but Fidala who is identified as a Parsi, uh, this and this is sort of really where the the novel like goes full on into Orientalism in terms of what it means to be associated with uh, Persia, Iran, Zoroastrianism, etc. But as I mentioned in the last episode, one of the big mysteries of the novel is who the secret crew of melee harpooners is on board. And there's a lot to be said about the way race, transpires in Moby Dick. There's the character of Pip, who's black, there's Dagu. And what I see with Melville is that he he sort of tries to he plays up and works with ethnic and racial stereotypes in order to kind of create a contrast with then some sort of psychological insight and character development of those characters. This is true to a certain extent throughout the novel, maybe more with Pip than say Dagoo. But it's it's absolutely not the case with, with with Fidala, who is just this kind of shadowy, ominous figure. And the fact that he's identified in the novel as a Parsi or a, an adherent to Zoroastrianism is significant for Ahab's own dualistic view of the universe. So there's a there's a moment where this really comes into the f- into the light, as it were, because. You see these different mates observing Fidala, calling him a fire worshiper, this sort of crude understanding of how Zoroastrianism works. And Ahab like leans into it. There's a part where they're close to the coast of Japan and they're hit with a typhoon. And Ahab has just had a new harpoon smelted or prepared by the the blacksmith. And the blacksmith's like this lost soul I believe the blacksmith's is this character who like escaped a failed life to go die on, on a whaling vessel. So that's, that's really showing us <laughs> the direction where this is going. And during this, this lightning storm, Ahab sort of seems indifferent to the plight and peril of the crew. And the, the, the new, the new harpoon has been struck by lightning. And Ahab has this, like addresses the white light fury of the storm as a kind of deity that he's willing to grant this kind of what he calls defying worship. He defiantly worships the power of the light and flame. And it's a little confusing in terms of the light versus darkness motifs we've seen in Persian dualism in in last season, because what Ahab says is that the white light of the storm is a portent or a sign of their encounter with the white whale, the color symbolism coming into play. And he pledges himself to the white light and you expect with the dualism, it would be light versus darkness, but it we're we're kind of stuck in light versus light. And I wonder if this is Melville showing Ahab's mistake in a sense, like he's, he's demonized this one force of nature and pledged himself to another, but like, maybe they're the same thing. That's one way I think to see this, but anyway, Fidala doesn't really have a personality. There's like one real conversation he has with Ahab, and it's kind of part of this, in my opinion, sort of hokey, prophetic angle. It's a prophetic plot device where Fidel's like, oh, like, I'm going to die before you do. And there's all these, like, kind of weird things that need to happen before you die. Like, you're going to die from from hemp or from a rope. And there's going to be a hearse. And the hearse is going to be made from wood from America. And, and Ahab's like, that's never going to happen out here. And it's like, of course, it sort of symbolically comes to pass. Or it comes, it comes to pass, like, in in that in this way, but just not how he anticipated Um but Fidala like appears as this kind of like he, he's like this spiritual prophetic counselor to Ahab. And he's also this kind of Mephistopheles figure to Ahab's Faust. And I'm sure we'll we'll have a chance later in the podcast to talk about Mephistopheles and Faust. So yeah, that's that's sort of how he he shows up. And like you see like the the crew and the mates especially are kind of freaked out by Fidala and they kind of like murmur or fantasize about pushing him off the boat. So and in some ways I find Fidala less interesting than the three chief harpooners of the vessel, the Pequod. Queequeg, of course, who like Ishmael kind of drops off. There's a great chapter where he catches fever and prepares, a, he, a coffin's prepared for him. And this coffin ends up being the life buoy that saves Ishmael's life as Ishmael is the only survivor of the Pequod. But so we have some Queequeg in the last third of the novel, but there's a, when, when, when Ahab is giving his sort of sermon on the white lightning of the, of, of the typhoon, the three harpooners appear in this kind of like ominous light. And I'll, I'll read from what Melville writes. Relieved against the ghostly light, Dagu loomed up to thrice his real stature and seemed the black cloud from which the thunder had come. The parted mouth of Tashkego revealed his shark-white teeth, which strangely gleamed as if they too had been tipped by corpusants. While lit up by the preternatural light, Queequeg's tattooing burned like satanic blue flames on his body. So even though Melville can sort of balance out his his racial, ethnic exoticizing and stereotyping with some psychological detail and insight, especially with Queequeg and also with Pip, as the novel pushes towards its conclusion we go full on mythologically charged final battle mode and so that kind of nuance largely drops away i would say these characters become menacing members of a tableau rather than fully formed humans and before in the moments before the scenes before the the typhoon we get a, a continuation of the black mass motif that I talked about in the last episode that also plays up on the paganness and exoticization of the harpooners. And this is like this is not just a device in the novel. The paganness and the exoticism are shown to be extremely appealing to Ahab. He sees these harpooners in their non-Christianness Non-Christianness, and I would say also their non-whiteness, as natural allies in his quest to slay this beast. Which is curious considering how slaying the dragon or disciplining the Leviathan is a real mainstay of an apocalyptic Christian script. So there's some irony there that like, oh, the pagans are going to help me defeat this monster. Well, it's like the way this is being scripted is like Revelation or Job or moments in the Psalms or Isaiah. But anyway, before Ahab's harpoon gets struck by lightning, Ahab asks the three harpooners to help him baptize this new foil, this new lance he's had made in their blood. And this is the passage. This is Ahab talking right now. No, no, no water for that. I want it of the true death temper. Ahoy there, Tashtego, Queequeg, Dagu. What say ye pagans? Will you give me as much blood as will cover this barb, holding it high up? And just to note, Ahab insists that his own shaving razors be used as the barbs the harpoon he tells the blacksmith i don't need them anymore i'm like going full playoff hockey mode where i don't shave until we kill the white whale it's also sort of seems to be like way of saying like oh i'm i'm departing the sort of quotidian routines and rituals of life because i'm actually on the verge of death anyway so in answer to Ahab's question a cluster of dark nods replied yes three punctures were made in the heathen flesh and the white whale's barbs were then tempered. You see this parallelism, this contrast between heathen flesh and white whale that, that is sort of being worked through there. This is what, this is what Ahab says. Ego non baptizo te in nomine patris sed in nomini diaboli, which is Latin for, I'm not baptizing you in the name of the father, but in the name of the devil. And this deliriously howled Ahab. As the malignant iron scorchingly devoured the baptismal blood. So, again, an inversion of a Christian ritual with the blood of pagans instead of water that is supposed to cleanse the, the newborn child or the or the freshly converted believer. Yeah, a lot going on there. But I I think I think there's a way of making sense of all of this, this sort of strange dwelling on. Hagan-ness and like ethnic otherness and i'm going to try to take a stab at, at explaining that so in the last moments of the novel after moby dick has totally destroyed everything and this action plays out over the course of three days which seems somehow to be linking to christ's crucifixion, being in the tomb and resurrection, I don't know. I, I'm not gonna I'm not gonna belabor that. But it seems significant. the chase the final chase takes place over three days. And in the final image of the Pequod going down, Tashtego, one of the main harpooners, who's this gay header Native American from the tip of Martha's Vineyard, is like trying to nail one of Ahab's flags, the sort of red flag, onto a spar. And he's like the la- it's like the last tip. And he's, he's nailing it, and he gets attacked by a seahawk. And I, I'll just read the passage. But as the last whelmings intermixingly poured themselves over the sunken head of the Indian Indian at the mainmast, leaving a few inches of the erect spar yet visible, together with long streaming yards of the flag, which calmly undulated with ironical coincidings over the destroying billows, they almost touched. At that instant, a red arm and a hammer hovered backwardly uplifted in the open air in the act of nailing the flag faster and yet faster to the subsiding spar a skyhawk that tauntingly had followed the main truck downwards from its natural home among the stars pecking at the flag and incommoding tashtigo there this bird now chanced to intercept its broad fluttering wing beneath the hammer and the wood and simultaneously feeling that ethereal thrill the submerged savage beneath in his death grasp kept his hammer frozen there And so the bird of heaven with archangelic shrieks and his imperial beak thrust upwards and his whole captive form folded in the flag of Ahab went down with his ship, which, like Satan, would not sink to hell till she had dragged a living part of heaven along with her and helmeted herself with it. Now small fowls flew screaming over the yet yawning gulf. A sullen white surf beat against its steep sides, then all collapsed and the great shroud of the sea rolled on as it rolled 5,000 years ago. Yeah. 5,000 years ago seems to be a reference to the first flood that, that Noah narrowly escapes. That seems to be what's going on. I also wondered when I first heard it if it was a reference to the, the Sea of Reeds or the Red Sea collapsing down over Pharaoh and Pharaoh's army. Well, Pharaoh's army in particular uh, as, as the children of Israel escape. A lot of A lot of resonance here. So a lot going on, the fact that Melville makes this point of showing the Pequod's masthead, which is a Pequod Indian, a statue of Pequod Indian, and its Native American chief harpooner, one of its chief harpooners, as the last thing you see of this vessel, to me, it bespeaks an awareness on Melville's part of something about Native peoples in North America the mass death and calamity for natives and it pairs well i think with a famous chapter which i haven't talked about um on the horror of whiteness which happens earlier in the novel so you could see this pretty clearly i guess allegorically the white ethno-national empire destroys the indian like moby dick in the horrific whiteness of his giganticness symbolizes the expanding u.s white christian nation state so yeah, and yet here again, the, we have this satanic imagery layered on top of that. And we might wonder, what's going on there? This satanic fall from grace, to illustrate Tashtigo's final defiance against the bird, who is compared to heaven, to an archangel, and to the empire. So in some ways, the bird is aligned, if, if my reading holds any water, haha, with the white imperious whale. And so Tashchigo's Final Defiance is also his final allegiance to Ahab's satanic mission against his sort of tragic dune mission against this this white imperial power. There's so much going on. It's hard to fully process it because that's the thing with this novel. It's it is so many layers and it's rich. Rich is such a cliche, but it's rich in the sense that you can you can do a lot with it. But I think the double image of the Indian is really doing something here. And I don't know if it's incongruous with Satan imagery. Let me, let's, me let like, work it through. Maybe in some ways that are reminiscent of the Romantics reading of Milton's Satan, where Satan is the heroic symbol of the revolutionary generation. This Satan-native symbol we get at the end is a kind of neutral reading of Satan. Satan not. In, in the way that the Romantics almost wanted to read Satan, which is to say as being a hero or as being... Morally neutral, but sort of politically radical. That being satanic is not being evil, it's about being anti-Christian. And by extension, anti-white. Melville's Ishmael cultivates this air detachment. And I sort of, I would mention it before as a kind of balance. And he, he backs away from the normally moralistically charged categories of good versus evil and especially pagan versus christian and there's a there's the early chapter about quiqueg and quiqueg's religion that brings the kind of relativism that ishmael embraces into focus and i think that the sort of relativism extends to the satanic versus the divine it's not just about christian versus pagan that also maps on really well with satanic versus divine and this this is like that that thesis i think i see in the novel doubts of all things earthly intuitions of some things heavenly this combination makes neither believer nor infidel, but makes a man who regards them both with equal eye. And I think that the satanic, the sort of link between Tashtigo, the Indian, his allegiance to Ahab, the satanic imagery put on top of that, the kind of final, last parting gesture of revenge or defiance against the heavenly archangel. There's a way in which Christianity, the Christian God, Christian providence, you know, like manifest destiny. This is all being layered onto the force of the whale in this moment. And Ahab, Ahab's struggle against that has to be coded as pagan. In So we end with that political symbol that association between the native the satanic ahab paganness vis-a-vis christianity whiteness empire and yet there is still i think this hedging in ishmael's account of what's happening that leaves some room for different interpretations so one of the things that struck me when i was listening to this on the the icy highways of, of uh, Pennsylvania and New Jersey is when they first approach Moby Dick on day 1 this is the description they give a gentle joyousness a mighty mildness of repose and swiftness invested the gilding invested the gliding whale not the white bull jupiter swimming away with ravished europa clinging to his graceful horns his lovely leering eyes sideway intent upon the maid with smooth bewitching Fleetness, rippling straight for the nuptial bower in Crete. Not Jove, not that great majesty supreme, did surpass the glorified white whale as he so divinely swam. So you get a divine image of the whale. To sort of link back to what we were talking about before with the sort of the uh, apophatic theological take. That's day one. So we have Moby Dick as a god essentially, in this, in this passage, which you could see is lining up with the, the, the idea that this, if this, this is the terrible Christian god that is authorizing the providential slaughter and genocide and enslavement of, of millions of people. Day three, the comparison shifts a bit. This is when um, Ahab's in, it locked in battle with the whale. Give way, cried Ahab to the oarsmen, and the boats darted forward to the attack. But maddened by yesterday's fresh irons that corroded in him, Moby Dick seemed combinedly possessed by all the angels that fell from heaven. The wide tiers of welded tendons overspreading his broad white forehead beneath the transparent skin looked knitted together as head on he came churning his tail among the boats and once more flailed them apart, splitting out the irons and lances from the two mates' boats and dashing in one side of the upper part of their bows, but leaving Ahab's almost without a scar." So Moby Dick starts off as this kind of majestic, divine presence, but enraged channels all the angels that fell from heaven, It channels the demonic and the satanic. It seems to be a real argument for identity there that kind of takes us back into uh, Adam Kotzko territory, I think. I'll close out with... A moment from the first day that I thought was like this kind of the most cinematic part of the descriptions of Ahab. As, as, as everyone knows, I'm into monsters channeling my like four year old Godzilla watching self. And there's a part when Ahab is first chasing Moby Dick and Moby Dick dives down, like, you know, seemingly to escape sounds, takes a huge breath and dives down. And Ahab's like, oh, he's going to be gone in an hour. Like these whales, you know, like maybe you heard, like they can hold their breath, right? And so he gazed beyond the whale's place towards the dim blue spaces and wide wooing vacancies to leeward. It was only an instant, for again his eyes seemed swirling around in his head as he swept the watery circle. The breeze now freshened, the sea began to swell. And something to note here is that there's all these seabirds that were hanging out around Moby Dick as he was swimming, and they fly away when he sounds. And then all of a sudden, the birds, the birds, cried Tashtago, In long Indian file, ha ha, as when herons take flight, the white birds were now all flying towards Ahab's boat. That can't be good. And when within a few yards began fluttering over the water there, reeling round and round with joyous, expectant cries. Their vision was keener than man's. Ahab could discover no sign in the sea. But suddenly, as he peered down and down into its depths, he profoundly saw a white living spot, no bigger than a white weasel, with wonderful celerity, uprising and magnifying as it rose, till it turned, and then there were plainly revealed two long, crooked rows of white, glistening teeth floating upward from the undiscoverable bottom. It was Moby Dick's open mouth and scrolled jaw; his vast shadow bulk still half blending with the blue of the sea. The glittering mouth yawned beneath the boat like an open-doored marble tomb. And giving one sidelong sweep with his steering oar, Ahab whirled the craft aside from this tremendous apparition. It's just like incredible to imagine. You're just like looking down into the depths and you see this little white thing coming towards you, and you realize it's the yawning jaws of this colossal killer. Just just amazing. So yeah, uh, This is, I guess this is me round, rounding up, finishing up with Moby Dick, rounding up Moby Dick. I don't know. You can't, you can't herd the Leviathan, but yeah, thanks for listening. Really appreciate it. I know this is like a horrible time, this Omicron portion of the pandemic. Again, I guess it's a good, it's a good time to be reading a a novel about the uh, sublime, like demonic, divine otherness and cruelty and power of nature. Um, So yeah, I I think maybe it, it works with, with this moment. But thank you all for listening. Thanks for being here in the new year. If you if you feel so moved, please uh, rate, review, tell your friends, send messages back to Nantucket by boat with with sort of gnarled sailors who are whispering rumors, rumors of war against the demonic whale. And yeah, we'll see you next time.